Uh, good morning, City Church. How you guys doing? It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, for those of you who are new, my name is Sean Little. I'm the community and teaching pastor here. Uh, we're so glad that you chose to be with us this morning. And like Jeff said, if you could, go ahead and take a moment to open up your program. And there's a Connect card on the inside of your program. If you could, just fill that out. It's basic information. We're not going to sell it or show up at your door. We just want to send you a thank you email for being here. It lets us know that you were here, uh, which would mean a great deal to us. Uh, and then also, one more thing before I jump into it. Uh, I want to give the same preface that I gave last week. Usually when I preach, I sort of live in one section of the scriptures. Um, I didn't do that last week, and I didn't, I'm not going to do that this week, which I understand is challenging. It's hard to follow along with. Uh, when I listen to preachers and they're bouncing all over the place, I just feel overwhelmed, and I kind of check out. Uh, so something that we've done to help you with that is put all of the scriptures and all the slides that you'll see uh, on your phone. So if you want to pull your phone out, if you have the City Church app, I would encourage you to go ahead and do that. If you have an Android, uh, the City church app in the, in the top of the um, app it's a sermon notes section and if you have an iPhone it's on the bottom of the app it says sermon notes again that'll allow you to see clearly all of the scriptures that I'm referencing uh, but today will be a topical sermon like last week um, and yeah that's that's just a quick encouragement for you guys so before we proceed uh, will you pray with me <clears throat> Father God, we are so thankful for uh, a new year, Um, not only a new day today, but especially a new year as we celebrate 2016. Uh, We can look back over 2015, and we can see that you have been active among us uh, and that you have shown favor towards us. So we're so thankful for the blessings and the gifts uh, of 2015. Uh, Lord God, I pray this morning for our city, uh, the city of Evansville, as a lot is happening and will continue to happen over this new year. Uh, We pray that you'll be with the leadership of our city. Uh, Bless them, give them wisdom and discernment about how to proceed, how to take care of our city. And also I pray for the other gospel-preaching churches uh, here in Evansville, not only this morning but also for the year. Uh, We pray that you would bless them, encourage them, grow them, uh, and just be with them even this morning as they're meeting, uh, that, the, that the gospel would be proclaimed uh, in all of its extravagance and beauty. As we open up your word this morning, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, teach and that you would help me teach. Uh, we need minds to discern God. We need ears to hear. We need eyes to see. We need hearts to receive. And that starts with me. Uh, so we ask all of this for our own good, for the good of those who we're in relationship with, and for your glory. And it's in the precious name of the Lord Jesus that we pray. Amen. Is it hard to believe that it's already 2016? Honestly, I was born in 84, and I'm like, man, this is getting crazy out here, 2016. Well, as you know, and I'm sure some of you may have dabbled with this, uh, with every new year is the time-honored tradition of resolutions. Uh, This week in her article, The Key to Keeping Your New Year's Resolution, Madeline Somerville said, Change works best when it's built to be sustainable. And I appreciated that she went on to say, I don't know about you, but sustainable doesn't come naturally to me. When I make up my mind to do something, I want to do it now. That means that on December 31st, I sit down and write out plans for a new workout regime. regime. How do you say that word? Regime. I'm going to work on spelling and pronunciation this year. All right, a new diet, a new chore schedule, and early morning meditation sessions. By the time January 15 rolls around, I've said to heck with everything except a half-hearted attempt at daily meditation, which, if I'm honest, is really just sleeping upright. 
For many of us, the beginning of a new year marks the annual tradition of both looking back and looking forward, learning from the past, dreaming for the future, then setting out to edit and change and improve through these lofty New Year's resolutions. Now, I want you guys to be honest. By a quick show of hands, who are the brave souls willing to admit that you've set out some resolutions for this year? I'm not the only one. Okay, I stand in solidarity with you, and I'm going to share a few of my resolutions for 2016. Uh, And you can hold me accountable to these throughout the year. First, I want to practice yoga three times a week. That's one of my resolutions. Uh, Two, I want to take my wife, I haven't told her this, on a date every month. When we were young and married, that was sort of a priority. As time has gone by, that's less of a priority. So I want to take you on a date every single month. And then also, I want to keep a prayer journal. That's something that I also want to do. But it is hard for us to admit our goals, isn't it? I mean, especially publicly, because we know ourselves and our struggle with consistency. We're so inconsistent. And because New Year's resolutions get all kind of press. I mean, good press and bad press. Resolution haters say that you're just setting yourself up for the inevitable failure. And then there are the overly optimistic folks who just have a huge list. They shoot for the moon and land in the stars. But there are voices of sobriety, like Madeline's, who softly speak about sustainability and subtraction. I want to return to her article, and this is what she said. Now, typically, when we think of resolutions, we often seek to add more to our life. We add workouts and classes and meal planning days. We add responsibilities and expectations and place new demands on ourselves. In doing so, we are seeking a full life and a beautiful one too. Incredibly worthy goals, but we often end up overextended instead. So, instead of adding more, 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 what if we began subtracting? Take a look at your life as it stands. What's important to you? What do you value most? What nourishes you and excites you? What makes you a better person? Pare down, rid yourself of excess, keep what feeds you, and leave the rest behind. Today, as we open up our Bibles or our apps, we're going to see that Madeline is really on to something. We're going to see that the key to a full life, a beautiful one, a full one, and we're going to find out what Scripture says that is, what that key is. What is really valuable and important, nourishing and exciting. When you examine scriptures, which is what I'm trying to do today, sort of from a 30,000 foot view, you'll find that the creator of life itself tells us that there are three relationships that are absolutely vital to having a life that is beautiful and important and value, valuable and nourishing and exciting. A life that counts for more than paying bills and going to work and partying and paying bills and going to work and finding leisure. I don't know about you guys, but there are times when I stop and I wonder, I mean, is this, is this what my life is about? Is this everything that I was intended for? Shouldn't my life matter for more? And every time I find myself in that place asking those questions, if I step back for long enough, I often find that I'm neglecting one or more of these three really valuable, important relationships that nourish us as human beings, because it's how we were made. In fact, as we look at these three vital relationships this morning, you may find that in your life, one or more of them is lacking. Either that you've gotten lazy and neglected it, you've gotten too busy to keep up with it. But if that's the case, if that settles in to you, I want to start with an encouragement. I want to remind you that you are a human being, 
and to err is human. So if this stuff settles at home, don't beat yourself up. Don't look back. The Lord has blessed us. He's given us a new day. He's given us a new year. So let's take advantage of all of the newness that he's given us. Now, as you might expect, the first relationship that the scriptures talk about, which is vital to a full, important, valuable, nourishing, and exciting life, is a relationship with... You guys are smart. God. A relationship with Jesus. And when I say a relationship with God, what I'm, what I'm talking about in addition to that really is intimacy with God. Over and over the scriptures tell us that human beings were made for this relationship, were made for this intimacy. Solomon says it this way in Ecclesiastes. He says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. What he's saying is that there's a longing deep within our souls, all of us, for something more than this life could ever offer or afford us. Every longing you and I have, every desire that we have, regardless of how we express it, actually springs from this ultimate desire of our souls for a relationship and intimacy with God. As I said last week, all human souls thirst for God. And then here's some insight from C.S. Lewis on this topic. You might uh, recognize this first part, and we'll bring it up here on the screen. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Now he goes on to write, If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the, on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. Do you hear that? Earthly pleasures, which are actually only a kind of copy or echo or mirage, for something else. Before I was a Christian, that was the story of my life. The pursuit of earthly pleasures in the place of eternal pleasures. And I'm not saying that I got it all figured out or that I don't dabble in earthly pleasures as a means to eternal pleasures. Uh, but certainly before I was a Christian, that is absolutely how I live, chasing temporary things for eternal satisfaction. And thankfully, my perspective has been changed, and it is being changed, and it is being influenced. I'm learning to not look at temporary things for eternal satisfaction. That's a story, though, that we see every year during the holidays, isn't it? Looking at temporal things for eternal satisfaction. And we see it in children so clearly. The build-up to Christmas The anticipation of what they're going to get, holding the gift and unwrapping the gift, having it, possessing it, playing with it, and enjoying it. Christmas morning, right? The fulfillment of this anticipation, the fulfillment of this expectation, running to the tree, grabbing the gift, tearing it open, enjoying it, celebrating over it, and then going to grandma and grandpa's house for even more of that. And then the day after Christmas, when kids get kind of low, And they're not as happy or excited. And you guys know the word. They are bored. How are you already bored? But let's be honest. Let's not just relegate this to children, right? Because we are uh, guilty of this as well. Living for, and this one hits home, living for the vacation that we planned. 
you get there, and let's go ahead and put a name on there. We'll call there Hawaii, just to be creative. You get to Hawaii, and it is just everything. I mean, it's everything that you've dreamed of. It's everything that you were daydreaming about when you were at the office. You, not me. And it's everything that you were dreaming about at nighttime as you drifted off to sleep. Hawaii is everything. And then you find yourself back home. And we'll give home a name. We'll just call it Evansville to be creative. And after two weeks in Hawaii, you're back home in Evansville. And it's a letdown, isn't it? The sky is gray and there are faux palm trees and it's cold outside and it's wet outside. Back to the grind, back to the bills, back to life as we know it, back to job, back to reality. Or, and again, this is about you, this isn't about me, you get all excited about buying a new car or a house or maybe an outfit, a record player, which is something I'm looking for right now, because it's going to change your life. I mean, that's why we sweat our material possessions so much, right? It's going to change us. It's going to revolutionize our life. And all of a sudden, you possess the thing, and you wake up, and you like it. It's cool, but it hasn't changed your life, has it? The reason is that God has set eternity in the hearts of men and women. You were designed for intimacy with God. You were designed for a relationship with God, and without it, life ceases to take on any real purpose. Without it, life ceases to be full and important, valuable, nourishing, and exciting. Without intimacy with God in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, life becomes meaningless. Again, we'll turn to Solomon for his perspective on this. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. In his sort of mind camp, Solomon explains that he's embraced everything. I mean, this guy didn't limit himself at all. He wasn't polite. He pursued earthly pleasures in the form of acquisition and education, construction, expanding his empire, building his portfolio, growing his wealth, conquest, mastery, sex, drink, party, the list had no end. He pursued everything, all of these earthly pleasures as eternal pleasures, and in doing so, he discovered that all was meaningless. He didn't keep himself from these things and say, well, it's not worth anything, so I'm not going to go after him. He gave himself to everything and found out that there was nothing in it. And I wonder who that's speaking to this morning. If that's you, I want you to know that God has placed eternity inside of you. He's put eternity inside of your heart as a sort of compass telling the true north of the meaning and purpose of your life. As St. Augustine writes in his Confessions, and we'll put this one up on the screen, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Again, you have made us for yourselves, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Let's hear the call of Jesus here as well. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So with all of that said, I'm sure there are some of you who are wondering, how do I achieve this relationship with God? How do I obtain this intimacy? And if you'll do me a favor, I want to take sort of a a creative uh, rabbit trail to separate those two things out. I'd like to tease out the truth a little bit because there is a significant difference uh, between a relationship with God and intimacy 
with him. First, we'll deal with a relationship with God. All world religions, Christianity excluded, have this one thing in common. All world religions. They say that a man can work. In fact, that he must work and earn his way to God. Towards enlightenment. Towards paradise. Towards nirvana. That's a theme that's constant throughout all world religions. That a man is responsible and he must earn his way and work. Whereas Christianity is not only different from all world religions but really all of world philosophy and ideology as well. Because Christianity declares that there is no such thing as earning anything from God. You don't work to get anything from God. You can't work to get anything from God. And I want you to hear this. This might ruffle your feathers a little bit. We can neither earn his blessing nor his curse. We can't work to receive salvation, but we also can't work to receive condemnation. Does that sell? You're like, whoa, buddy. The reason is we are born into condemnation. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We don't work to be condemned. We're born into that nature because of the lineage of Adam. And this is the good news of great joy for all the people that I was talking about last weekend, that Jesus offers not only a revolutionary teaching, which he certainly does, and not only an incredible example of a full and beautiful and compelling and revolutionary life, which he does, but Jesus offers what no one else can offer, which is what makes him truly revolutionary. He offers new birth, which is what we all need. Because all of us are born into Adam. We need new birth out of Adam. And in this new birth, he offers other things. He offers the status of his sonship. To believe in Jesus is to be born again and to be perceived as God, seen as God, as a child of God. He offers the reward of his resurrection, which is the eternal life that he secured for men and women through his victory over death. My friends, this morning, do you know that death is dead because Jesus killed it. Death is dead. And when Jesus is asked in John chapter 6, and I talk about this a lot, uh, thinking about work, effort, what, what a man must do, when he's asked, what must we do to do the work that God requires, here's his response in John six twenty nine: This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And this belief in Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of humanity, is how we are reconciled with God, included in Christ, delivered from being in Adam, born anew. A relationship with God is achieved by believing in the perfect person and completed work of Jesus. And because that work is complete, there's nothing that we can do in addition to it. And also, because that work is perfect, there's nothing we can do to take away from it. In Christ, our relationship with God is eternally secure. If you have believed this morning, do you know that you are secure in Christ? No longer sinners, now saints, and not only saints, but sons and daughters as well. Okay, that's the relationship part. Let's flip the page in your mind and let's talk about intimacy. Now, for those of you who have been believers for some time, you may know that intimacy with God is a different reality. It's a different experience. Whereas our relationship with God is secure in the person and work of Christ, intimacy is a little bit different. 
Although comparing our relationship with God to human relationships has its faults and its shortcomings, um, I think that it could be helpful. So give me a little bit of uh, grace here. Because human relationships reflect the same reality, that intimacy is different than just having a relationship. This very moment, we find ourselves in a host of relationships that are uninterruptible, right? We are moms and dads, we're brothers and sisters, we're aunts and uncles, we're grandmas and grandpas. Those relationships cannot be dissolved like the relationship between a man and God once a man has believed in the Lord Jesus, But intimacy within our human relationships does ebb and flow, right? Do you guys agree with that? It ebbs and flows. The holidays is often proof of that. Thankfully, well, that's kind of rude. Thankfully, I didn't have to go to Cincinnati this year to kick it with my family because there are some very not uh, intimate relationships that are super awkward for me to experience. You're spending time with people who you're in uninterruptible relationships with, but who you're not intimately connected with. Intimacy depends upon our intention. It takes time. Intimacy must be cultivated, right? This is true of marriage as well. My wife is my wife. There's nothing that she could do to not be my wife, but intimacy is our work. And when it comes to cultivating intimacy with God, I know of no other way to do so than simply spending time with him, not necessarily coming to church, Not necessarily doing good works. Not necessarily sacrificing of yourself. Those are all good and honorable things, but they don't necessarily bring about intimacy with God. So, as you think about this vital relationship, I encourage you to figure out something that does work for you in this, in this new year, in the details uh, and the uniqueness of your life, to spend time cultivating intimacy with God. Maybe you can carve out time throughout your day to meditate on scriptures or to pray. Um, this is a little trick I'm going to give you, all right? This is free, and it's going to be worth everything that you pay for it. The book of Proverbs has 31 chapters, and there's not a month in the year that has more than 31 days. Just read a chapter of Proverbs that corresponds with the day every day. It's easy, it's profound, and it's quick. You can do that. Maybe you could use our weekly devotional and City Life Group discussion guide, which we send out and post on the website every week, to personally follow along with what we're dealing with here in service, whether it's a topic or a specific scripture. Again, we have nothing more than what is securely ours in Christ. We can't add to it. But for the sake of experiencing intimacy with God, enjoy time with him. Spend time with him. Find out everything that you have in Christ by spending time with God. Life that is full and valuable, nourishing and exciting begins with this foundational relationship with God and intimacy with God. But there is a second vital relationship that brings meaning and fullness to our life, and those are relationships with fellow believers in Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the second relationship that we're going to talk about. In other words, building community, deep relationships with fellow believers— And this is a little bit harder than spending time with God. Let me ask you something. What do you think about all day? I'm going to give you like three seconds to think about what you think about all day. Go ahead. If you're an entrepreneur, it's probably your ventures. If you're a coach, you're probably thinking about your players, how you can help them, what their weaknesses are, what their strengths are. If you're a mother, you're probably thinking about your children. If it's Sunday morning, you're probably thinking about lunch, but stick with me for a little bit. Now, what do you think God 
thinks about all day. Of course, he's omniscient, so he can be thinking about all things at once, but you dig what I'm saying. What do you think is on God's mind? Where does his mind drift? What preoccupies him? What does God daydream about? We can know the answer to that because Jesus is God personified. He's the visible image of the invisible God. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in the person of Jesus. And Jesus insisted that God is consistently thinking about people because he loves them. Jesus said the mind of the Father is moved toward his people the way that the mind of a shepherd keeps coming back to his lost sheep. The way the thoughts of a poor woman are obsessed with her lost coin. God could no more forget about people than a mother could forget about her baby. The God on Jesus' lips is a God who, as I said last week, has a permanent passion for people. People are always on God's mind. Not your refined theological system in which you have so much pride. That's not on God's mind. Not the cyclical sin in your life that plagues you. That's not on God's mind. Not the sin of others that disgusts you. That's not on God's mind. God is preoccupied with people. He has a permanent passion for people. And there's a very important implication to this. It is simply impossible to be intimate with God without also being drawn to people. It's impossible. Once Jesus was uh, grilled, you guys know what grilled means? We're getting hit, grilled, it's like confronted. Uh, Once Jesus was grilled by a self-righteous religious zealot who asked him, and we'll put it up on the screen, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? I mean, can you imagine trying to pop quiz Jesus? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But he proceeded, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. I think sometimes people think that a relationship with God, their Bible, and prayer is all that they need. But that's not true. That's the first part of Jesus' response. But he does go on to add a second part as well. Further, God gives us uh, even more clarity if we think back to the book of Genesis. Back in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, God creates Adam. Adam is living in a state of perfect intimacy with God. They talked face to face. They walked in the garden with one another. Each word that they shared was filled with closeness and joy, unity, intimacy. He's known and loved to the core of his being by his creator, And do you remember what God said to Adam? In spite of all of that, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. Isn't that kind of weird? I mean, he wasn't alone. He was with God. But God still declared, it is not good for the man to be alone. You need people. You need relationships. You were created for community. And no substitute will satisfy that longing. Money won't satisfy it. Status won't satisfy it. Achievement won't satisfy it. Your busyness won't satisfy it. Your books won't satisfy it. Your prayer won't satisfy it. Dare I say, based on what God said, God will not even satisfy that. It's not good for a man to be alone. You were created for community, for relationships with other people. Now, there is an immeasurable benefit of community which is sharing life with one another. The joys and the laughter, the sorrows and the struggle, the pain and the pleasure. 
but specifically for the community of believers, fellow Christians, your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's all of that benefit which is marked by hope. We share in hope with one another. The French priest Jean Venier once wrote, a community is not simply a group of people who love each other. It is a place of resurrection. It's not just people, it's a place as well. In other words, Christian community brings you back to life. Here's a resolution for you to consider this year. Get involved in a community with other believers. This is just a quick plug. I mean, I didn't write the sermon to get to this point, but the primary way you do that here at City Church is getting involved in one of our city life groups. There are two ways to get involved in a city life group that I do want to draw your attention to. First, immediately all the information is on the middle uh, of your program. Open it up, it's all right there. And then second, on January 31st, the last Sunday in January, over at our new building, hey, hey, we're going to have a newcomer's orientation. You can jot that date down, come to that. Those are two ways to get plugged in to a city life group. You were made for community, a resurrection community whom the resurrected Jesus is the epicenter of. Don't miss out on the joy and the peace and the rest and the perspective that comes from this important, valuable, nourishing, and exciting relationship with others who are inside the family of God. Resolve to get involved in a community of believers. That's my second one. Third, the third vital, final relationship is with those who are still outside of the family of God. Those who don't yet believe. That's a third relationship that I'm encouraging you to get in. If you have a relationship with Christ, you are redeemed to be a conduit of God's love and compassion to the rest of the world and not a container You guys know the difference between a conduit and a container? (laughs) And you know when this happens, if, if, if if you're a container and not a conduit, there will be some indication because you start thinking that the world and church is all about you. And that comes home to me as well. If you're a container rather than a conduit, you think that everything is about you. But you were redeemed to witness to the world what Jesus has done for you and your life. That's the point of our redemption. It's not just to get saved and to go to heaven, but to be a witness for what Christ has done for us. In Acts 1.8, Jesus is recorded speaking to his followers, and he says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. You'll be my witnesses everywhere, to everyone. In other words, if you're a Christian, a believer in the Christ, you have this incredible privilege of being a witness for Jesus and what he's done for you. But this can't happen apart from relationships with those who are not yet believers. And those people are all throughout your life. You live with them, and you work with them, and you play with them, and you argue with them, especially on Facebook. And for those of you thinking, well, a a witness for Jesus, that sounds kind of weird, that sounds kind of intense, that sounds uncomfortable, I'd like to draw your attention to what has become the quintessential scripture in my life on this subject. It's 1 Peter 3.15. Peter writes, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. That word revere is derived from the Greek hagiazo, which is also translated as sanctify. Sanctify means to set apart, like... Take it here and put it down there. So I want to read that again with set apart in place of revere. 
in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. More than evangelism tools or techniques or tracks, there's a simple and yet profound truth here. Everyone has a Lord, a Lord of their hearts. Everyone has a Lord, someone or something that they trust in, that they believe upon, that they build on. The believer in Jesus has trusted Christ. Peter is saying that the Christian practice should be one of continually setting apart Christ as Lord in my heart, in my inner person, because the inner person is what dictates the whole of life. Your conscience, your choices, your conduct, your character. We act out of the overflows of our hearts. And Peter is saying that while doing that, which really is a discipline unto itself. I mean, we've believed in Christ and we're secure in our salvation, but to give him lordship is a minute-by-minute challenge. And Peter's saying that while you're doing that, the Christian should simultaneously be preparing themselves to give an answer about their hope. Hope. The Apostle Paul writes about hope very often. In Ephesians 2, he reminds us to remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, you were without hope and without God in the world. Further, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes that if Christ had not been raised, resurrected, your faith is futile because you are still in your sins. If only for the life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. If we for this life only have hope in Christ, we of all people are to be most pitied. But I want you to see that this setting apart of Jesus as Lord in your heart that produces hope and the simultaneous preparing to give an answer is all happening within relationships. The relational explanation of our hope is so much different than having the right answers. And knowing Bible verses. And being a good, moral, correct, in-line person. Explaining our hope in relationships to people that we are building with, that we're earning the right to be heard from, is very different. I thought about a a personal example of this this morning. And this is just kind of some indication. Uh, One of my best friends in town, his name is Jake. Uh, I've just been, I don't know, he's, I mean, he's awesome, he's a trip. We're from a very similar place, a very similar background, uh, and I had the privilege just of meeting him, you know, about six years ago when we moved here. So I've been building with Jake, and then he invited me into another group of guys uh, on our group me app. It's called Man Chat, and I had to unplug it and disconnect from these apps because these dudes be talking crap every day, all day long. I just can't deal with it. But we hang out. They hang out every Tuesday night, and I probably join them uh, once a month, and they kick it. They do guy stuff. They hang out, they talk, they drink beers, they watch sports. So I go and I hang and I chill. And I've just been discipled, I think, by young life that relational ministry happens when you earn the right to be hurt. So I didn't bust in the door, waving the Christian flag, holding my Bible up and telling all them sinners to repent. I just kicked it. I started hanging with them. I really was privileged that they would have me there because they know who I am. They know what I'm into. They see where I work. They know what I do. They know how I spend my life, but still they welcomed me in. And for years, I just chilled and I listened. We would have conversation. And then eventually they started asking me questions about what I do, ministry, church. And then they railed on it. They said, the church is terrible for all these reasons. And I said, I completely agree with everything that you're saying. The 
church has, you know, committed all kinds of atrocities. It's done bad by people. I get what you're saying. I understand it. So I didn't judge them for it. I didn't criticize them for it. I empathized for it. And one of my friends, I'm going to leave his name to the side, he was really hard on me for a long time about the church, my place in it, Christian uh, identity, just being a public Christian. Um, And then eventually, he started having conversation with me, just talking about scripture, talking about what, you know, my story is, how I came to Christ, what changes happened in my life. And it was just interesting because I got invited to man night um, during Thanksgiving. It was the Thanksgiving man night. And that same guy who railed Christianity and my involvement in it asked me that evening, he said, hey, Sean, will you bless our meal? And I was so thankful to see that development happen. But it happened, and I'm not trying to big up me, I'm trying to encourage y'all, we have got to go into people's lives. We have got to go into their territory. We have got to be willing to listen to them, insult things that we value, insult things that we care about. Often those insults come from places of hurt, empathize with people. That's what we see in the incarnation, that God, this holy and righteous and um, just God that exists outside of earth, put on flesh, became man. The message in The Gospel of John says that he put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That's the privilege. That's the opportunity that we have as Christians to move into the lives of believing or non-believing men and women who are estranged from God. Earn the right to be heard. Do life with them. Share your story about what Jesus has done for you and this glorious and scandalous gospel. Okay, I want to encourage you to take four actions in light of that. One, be in relationships with non-believers. If you're a believer in Christ, you are secure in your salvation. Go to places that are a little bit risky. Kick it with people who are a little bit dirty, who are not Christian, who will get you in trouble around your Christian friends. Two, be in relationship. uh, I'm sorry, pray for the non-believers that you're in a relationship with. Be intentional. Pray for them. Hear their hurts. Hear their struggles. Pray for them. Three, sensitively seek an opportunity to share what Jesus has done for you. Not only the gospel, not only the truth, the facts, tell them what Jesus has done for you. And then fourth, and I would have never in my life dreamed that I would have said this, but the Lord is building me and growing me. Invite them to church. Do you know how unique this is, what we do on Sunday mornings? That we sing together, that we praise God together, that we shake hands, that we welcome one another, that we wake up early on Sunday morning to come here in the first place. Invite them into this fellowship. It's a beautiful thing. There's an old uh, Chinese proverb that says, if your vision is for a year, plant wheat. If your vision is for a decade, plant trees. But if your vision is for a lifetime, plant people. People. Let's be about people. For in the person of Jesus Christ, God was reconciling all people to himself, not counting men and women's sins against them because he counted them against his son, which is what we see and what we proclaim every week in the completed work of Christ on the cross. He was crucified in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous. As many of us begin a new year by looking back and looking forward, learning from the past and dreaming for the future, accounting for who we were and who we want to be and editing and putting our best foot forward, I want to encourage you to attend to those three relationships. Your relationship with God, your relationship with believers, your relationship with non-believers. If you're not yet a believer this morning, we are so glad that you chose to be here with us. Please consider the scandalous gospel that you can't work your way to God, but God has worked his way to us and that we can believe and receive the gift of eternal life. 
Many who are here right now are the very Christians that I would encourage you to get in relationship with. I hear, I hear so many stories about people coming in and out of city church each week, and they don't meet anyone. They don't talk to anyone. I realize that's how our society operates, but like, shrug our society. Say what's up to somebody. Shake a hand. Give them a hug. And again, your relationship with non-believers throughout your life. Be mindful of those things. Investing in those three vital relationships this new year has the potential to make this year our best collective and yours individually our best year yet. The most rewarding year of your life for your good, for the good of our city, for the people who you are in relationship with uniquely and for the glory of God.